So we are biased, and what we're going to talk about today is biased on the side of the oppressed, the African, the indigenous, and the colonized. You're listening to Reparations in Action. Uhuru! You're listening to the Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show, White Lies Shattered series. My name is Jamie Simpson. Reparations in Action is a program of white solidarity with black power, and the first 13 episodes we have dubbed the White Lies Shattered series, which will use the theory of African internationalism as developed by Chairman Omalia Chatella of the African People's Socialist Party, to overturn the insidious lies we tell ourselves as white or European people about the nature and origin of capitalism. At a time when parasitic capitalism is in the deepest crisis we have ever seen, from which it clearly cannot recover, we believe it is our responsibility as white people to understand the history of how we got here through the eyes of the African working class. We will identify a myth or lie that this colonial system spreads about itself each week and use the historical record and African internationalism to shatter that lie once and for all. We believe that reparations to African people is the key question of our times and is one that demands action on the part of European or white people. As always, we'd like to salute the Black Power 96 radio station and the African People's Education and Defense Fund that guides it. Today, we are taking on the white lie that white people brought civilization to the world. With us is Penny Hess, chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee and author of Overturning the Culture of Violence, and Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement. Welcome, and Uhuru Penny. Uhuru Jamie, and Uhuru Jesse. So I'm so happy to be back on Reparations in Action. We had a little hiatus, but we're back. And I'm excited to begin our series, White Lies, over the next several weeks. And this series is based on a book, Overturning the Culture of Violence, that I had the honor of participating in writing several years ago, based on the understandings of African internationalism, the political theory of Omalia Shetela, who is the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party. And I salute Chairman Omali Chatella because he has lived his life from the 1960s until today, fighting for the liberation of Africa and African people, understanding that African people are one nation of people forcibly dispersed around the world in the process of the kidnapping, selling, and stealing their, their labor, their land, um, their population, their resources, their intellect in the process of the building of capitalism, capitalist system, and colonialism that we see today. And I salute Chairman Omalia Chatella also because he has, he has taught us, white people, and he presents science to white people to struggle with us to begin to see the world as it really is, not as not the way we want it to be. And through the eyes of the African working class and the oppressed and colonized of the earth. And also that Chairman O'Malley Chatella has created organization, the African People's Socialist Party that exists all over the planet 
and also under its leadership, the African People's Solidarity Committee for White People. And it's part of the African People's Socialist Party's strategy to place the African revolution behind enemy lines, and of which I am a member, and I have the honor of being the chair of the African People's Solidarity Committee under Chairman O'Malley Shatella's leadership and the African People's Socialist Party. So part of our mandate is to go into the white community to wage what is called the war of ideas among the white population and show that the narrative that we take for granted is the narrative of colonialism and how that permeates everything, every question. And it, you know, it's really, really um, important and, and clear in this period of time when we see in the past year of 2020, the police murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis sparked just incredible resistance on the part of the African working class and the African community around this country. And a lot of white people were opened up to the ideas of understanding that African people live under the conditions of colonialism inside the borders of the United States. And that that colonial narrative is being challenged in this time of the crisis of imperialism. And as Chairman O'Malley Chantella says, that crisis of imperialism is brought about by the resistance of African people. So this is what we want to, we want to talk about. We want you to just say, let's say, try to wipe your brain clean. Just have a clean slate there. Let's begin to look at how everything that we think as white people, everything we're taught, everything we see on TV, always has the point of view in it of imperialism, of colonialism, of a system built at the expense of African, indigenous, oppressed and Arab people around the world for our benefit. So we are, we want to win you. We want to begin to show you that the narrative of the colonized and, and the versus the narrative of the colonizer, it, it, the narrative of the colonized is this future. It is what determines the world of the future. And we can be part of this. We, we want to, it's so exciting to be able to open up the truth and see history as it, as it really is. And this is why reparations and the colonial question, as Chairman O'Malley Shatella has said, is the critical issue today. If we want to end once and for all the terror and suffering and exploitation of capitalism and all of its genocidal reality. So, you know, we don't, we don't pretend to be objective. We believe that the world is, is not objective. We believe that what is called objectivity is actually the expression of the worldview of the status quo. And, you know, you can, you can see NPR or other kinds of, of media outlets that say they're objective, but they are always coming from the um, premise that the ultimate truth in the world is the truth is as the colonizer has told it. So we are biased, and what we're going to talk about today is biased on the side of the oppressed, the African, the indigenous, and the colonized. We're going to see history and talk about that over these next several weeks from their point of view. And to me, 
I think that, you know, beginning to understand this is something that opens us up. It is, it is incredibly liberating and a beautiful experience to, you know, to be able to see the world as others experience it. So African internationalism informs us that capitalism and every aspect of the modern world that exists today is based on the European assault on Africa, on turning African people into commodities for sale, stealing African people's independence, their labor, their resources. It's based on genocide, just blatant violence, um, rape and plunder. And when we look at, as, as Chairman O'Malley Chantella shows us, that the central motive around which every society is structured is the means to create and to produce and reproduce real life. But African people and most of the colonized of the earth have been forced to create and recreate life for us, for white people, for the white nation instead of for themselves. And, you know, we do understand that we are the colonizer nation. All of us, all of us white people are part of this. So we have to look at the world as it is. And that um, today, you know, we see a period in which African people and the struggle of African liberation, which is brings in and represents the interest of all oppressed and colonized peoples on this planet is going to win. It is winning and it's going to establish the ability for African people and oppressed people to create lives for themselves. So that is what we're trying to say. And we can be part of that by taking a stand for reparations, returning the stolen wealth to the African revolution and we can uh, also join in organizations. So I just wanted to read what Chairman O'Malley Shatella wrote in his book, Vanguard, which was uh, published about two years ago. And the chairman says that unlike Marx and Lenin, we African internationalists deny that there ever has been anything progressive about capitalism. Capitalism was born in disrepute of the rapes, massacres, occupations, genocides, colonialism, and every despicable act humans are capable of inflicting. Capitalism was not responsible for some great, otherwise unimaginable leap in production, which, quote, despite its contradictions, resulted in human progress and enlightenment. What capitalism did was to rip the vast majority of humanity out of the productive process in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Australia, and what has come to be known as the Americas. The hundreds of millions dead due to the slave trade and slavery itself. The millions exterminated everywhere Europeans ventured. These are people whose hands were forever removed from a relationship with nature that would result in production. Europeans achieved their national identity by way of this bloody process. This is not something that only happened a long time ago. The world's peoples are suffering the consequences of capitalism's emergence right now. And that's what the, the struggle is about, essentially, in the whole world. 
that is going on. Um, and so we want to show this and we want to begin by saying that the world was not always as it is now. The Europeans did not bring civilization to the world, that the world was a place in the Middle Ages of, of vast and flowering and importantly influential uh, civilizations all around the world. And that, in fact, Europe was the most backwards part of the world. And where the people had the least rights and where it was the most violent and the most uh, existing, you know, it was the most warlike and violent society. So I just wanted to start by reading a few, a little bit from, I have a pile of books here and I want to really talk about um, and read a little bit from, um, from these important books so that we can begin to have a sense of what the world was like prior to the European invasion. So I'm reading now from the book, Overturning the Culture of Violence, written by, by myself under the leadership of Chairman O'Malley Shatella. And I wanna start by saying that for thousands of years, before an Italian ex-slave trader and mercenary named Christopher Columbus sailed to the Caribbean, financed by the Spanish crown, world trade, culture, and civilization flourished. By 1492, Portugal had already been attacking Africa for a century or more, stealing human beings and extracting vast amounts of gold. It was the Portuguese king who told Columbus that, quote, boats had been found which started out from Guinea and navigated to the west to the Americas with merchandise. Since ancient times, well-traveled trade routes over land and sea provided the means for the interchange of commodities and ideas among African, Arabic, and Asian peoples. Evidence long suppressed by Europeans also proves that African people regularly sailed to the Americas hundreds, indeed thousands of years ago. And I, I would also add to that that Africans sailed to, um, to India and also to Australia about 40,000 years ago. From time immemorial, these long-standing spice and silk routes enabled Africans in Timbuktu, Mali, for example, to be linked with other cosmopolitan world centers in Northern Africa, the Persian Gulf, Constantinople, India, and China. Trained, trade winds and ocean currents to Asia and the Americas created water routes used since antiquity by African mariners. Widely diverse civilizations were thus connected in this way. Gold, salt, silk, spices, oils, and precious stones were disseminated in addition to philosophical and scientific advancements. It was along these routes that the Swahili people in southeastern Africa shipped an elephant to the court of the emperor of China nearly a thousand years ago, and African secrets of building pyramids and mummifying the dead were taken to the people of Central America as long ago as 850 BC. One book notes the fact that the banana, which seems to derive from Asia, had reached West Africa before the Europeans suggest suggests an international 
connection of great range. For millennia, humanity participated in world commerce, enjoyed by all and controlled by none. Isolated from the global interchange between sophisticated cultures in Africa and other parts of the world, Europe, for all practical purposes, did not exist. What is today known as Europe was made up of warring tribes, alienated from the rest of the human race, and desperately competing for scarce resources on cold, barren lands. While Africa enjoyed advanced civilizations, Europeans still lived in caves, notoriously impoverished and ignorant, nomadic European clans from the forests of the north wreaked destruction and violence at every turn. Far from being civilized, the reputation of these early Europeans gave us negative and antisocial concepts still in use today, such as vandalism and barbarity. The emergence of Southern European cultures along the Mediterranean came about because of their proximity to Africa, ancient Greece, and Rome were directly attributable to the much more ancient African civilization of Europe, which had been the dominant political and intellectual force in the world for more than 4,000 years. A conscious, a conscious European identity only manifested itself far later with the advent of slavery and colonialism, which created a world economy benefiting Europe at the expense of everyone else. And I'm going to um, just say a little bit more about, briefly, about Africa. Africa is unquestionably the birthplace of civilization and humanity itself. Its glorious history dates back tens of thousands of years and, and includes, but does not begin with, the great civilization of ancient Egypt. Africa is splendid and it is huge, nearly 12 million square miles. All of Europe, India, China, and the United States could fit within its borders. The late African scholar W.B. Du Bois describes it very poetically when he says, Africa is a beautiful land, not merely calmly and pleasant, but haunted with swamp and jungle, sternly beautiful in its loveliness of terror and its depth of gloom and its fullness of color, its heaven-tearing peaks, its, sil its silver of endless sand, the might, width, and breadth of its rivers, depth of its lakes, and height of its hot blue heaven. There are myriads of living things, the voice of the, star the storm, the kiss of pestilence and pain, old and ever new, new and incredibly ancient. Warm in climate and abundant in food and natural resources, the life-giving environment of Africa was conducive to the early rise of civilizations. Somewhere between 50 and 100,000 years ago, it seemed that man, human beings, appeared in Africa and became a regular user of fire. African civilization arose in the valley of the Nile River which flows for 4,160 miles, more than half the length of Africa, into the Mediterranean. It was in, fertile, in the fertile Nile Valley that agriculture was developed and iron tools were first wrought. The late brilliant African scholar Sheikh Anta Diop places the earliest beginnings of Egyptian civilization at 17,000 BC or BCE before the current era, when African society developed 
in the cradle of the upper Nile and slowly descended to spread out along the Mediterranean bases. By 7,000 BC, Africans had domesticated animals and developed agriculture, growing rice, corn, sorghum, and yams in several parts of the continent. Africans in Egypt first set a calendar in 4,241 BCE. In the most ancient of times, Africans had musical instruments, chairs, beds, jewelry, and art, as well as advanced concepts of science and technology, including agriculture, astronomy, mathematics, and, and healthcare, medicine. Characteristically democratic, these first African civilizations were governed by constitutions and a people's council on which the various social strata were represented. These states were each headed by a leader whose mission was to serve the people wisely and his authority dependent on his respect for the established constitution. Throughout his writings, the great African scholar Sheikh Anta Diop demonstrated the cohesive cultural and linguistic legacy of African civilizations, a legacy that continued through centuries Egypt was one of the most brilliant and influential of African civilizations, but there were many other remarkable African states which were unique yet notably similar. Nubia, with its ports on the Red Sea, was one such example. Like Egypt, Nubia, now Sudan, was a bustling hub that attracted people from Southern Africa as well as the Middle East and Asia. Both Egypt and Nubia emerged as viable economic, political, and cultural centers in northeastern Africa with links to other regions of the continent, writes Professor Harris in Africans and Their History. And I'm, you know, there's so much more to say about the incredible history of ancient Africa. And I hope that that we can go into it a little bit more. But I do want to just say a couple of things about uh, Sheikh Anta Diop, who um, some of his books include African Origins of Civilization and, and, and many, many others. Um, but he had this really powerful, um, he has a book called The Cultural Unity of Black Africa, and he has this amazing analysis that's so true that in which he describes the characteristics of what he calls the Southern Cradle Egyptian model or the African model versus the Northern Cradle slash Greek model or the European model. And I just want to read that because it's very interesting. That includes um, the Southern Cradle, abundance of vital resources. There was food um, everywhere, just falling off the trees. And it was, you know, there was not want. And number two, it was sedentary and agricultural. It was gentle, idealistic, peaceful nature with a spirit of justice. It had a matriarchal family, not that women dominated men, but the line of inheritance, so to speak, went through the women the women of the family. There was emancipation of women in domestic life. You can, you can see that in some of the writings, even of, of the Arab traveler to Africa, Ibn Battuta in the 1300s, in which he notes that 
um, how just you know much freedom and liberation African women had in African society. He says that the Southern Cradle was a territorial state. It had xenophilia, not xenophobia. It welcomed people. And as we can see if, through a study of history, I mean, even in the time of King Tut, and, and I just want to make the point that when King Tut was alive 3,500 years ago, the uh, monuments were already thousands of years old. So in his time, he was seeing the antiquity of African civilization 3,500 years ago. He was experiencing the antiquity of, of civilization. And from the earliest times, people came from all over the world to, to uh, travel to up the Nile and to really down the Nile and to um, be able to, you know, they had ferry boats, they had inns, they had tour guides, you know, to, to see this ancient civilizations. And um, Africans welcomed them. They, they were welcome to come and see what African Africa was really alike. And so it was cosmopolitan, there was social collectivism, there was material solidarity, meaning that there was the stance of alleviating moral or material misery, that that was something that occupied the society. There was the idea of peace, justice, goodness, and optimism. And this point that he makes, that, that Sheikh Antediop is making, is that African literature emphasizes tales, fables, and comedy. It is happy. But then he describes the Northern model in contrast and what Greece was like was barrenness of resources, nomadic hunting, so piracy, he calls it, ferocious warlike nature with uh, a spirit of survival and individualism and a patriarchal family, the debasement and enslavement of women, the city-state or a fort, xenophobia, fear of and, and hatred of other peoples, parochialism, individualism, parochialism meaning not wanting to learn about societies in, in other parts of the world or what other people thought, just going by what we see right here and all of this, you know, we still see in white society today, individualism, moral solitude. I know in the German language, there's something like 40 words, 40 different kinds of words for the word solitude you know, that, that it is idealized and this is considered the state. Whereas Africa, as, as Diop says, African people want to be and live in what Europeans call an extended family, what Africans just call their family. Um, so maybe 40 people live in a compound of, of a home, even today. And that there is in European society disgust for existence, pessimism, and uh, literature favors tragedy. Tragedy is the ultimate highest um, form of literature in, you know, in Europe, in European society, in, etc. So I wanted to read a little bit more. I want to read a little bit from Hosea Jaffe and his, who was a, actually he was a professor he was born, he was European, he was Lithuanian, but he was born in South Africa and he died in Italy only a few years ago. And he was um, 
you know, a professor and has written some really, really interesting analysis also of how the world got to be the way it is and the colonialism of Africa. So he says in his book called The History of Africa by Hosea Jaffe, he writes, Europe was driven outwards, not by wealth, but by poverty. A millennium after the Crusades, Japan, which like Europe, was rich agriculturally, um, but poor by nature and industrial potential, renounced her old despotic shogunate past in favor of capitalist colonialism. Africa, like Asia and America, were not poor in mineral industrial potential and was able to survive and develop without extra continental expansion on the basis of enlarged reproduction within communist or communal despotic societies. And I think that that's really, it's really important that Europe was poor. It had poorly, um, you know, it had land that was not arable, that was not conducive to farming and to growth. It had a, it had a climate that was very uh, cold in the winter and seasonal. And where in, in both Africa and Asia, there was there was much more the society that would loved where it was. It had what it needed to exist. It did not need to go out and conquer and conquer others. And so, um, you know, he, so Jaffe is beginning to talk about this, you know, what Europe did to conquer the rest of the world. And he is saying that, um, the first recorded commercial explore, explorations by Genoese in Genoa of Italy, merchants in Africa was as early as 1291 in Dante's lifetime. In 1341, Portuguese merchants were going to the Canaries with the Italians. And three years later, the Vatican Catholic Church ordered the French Admiral de la Cerda to seize the Canaries, the Canary Islands. By 1364, Normans from France were trading and raiding along Cape Verde coast. And by 1375, all of these are islands off the coast of Africa. By 1375, the Spanish in Mallorca knew enough to enable Crescas to show Timbuktu and Gao on a map with other Malian and Niger towns. So in 1402, merchants from Toulouse in France were settling in Timbuktu and, and Gao or Zhao. And in the same year, the, the Bethancourt seized the Canaries. Thus, the 14th century saw a considerable penetration of West and North Africa by Italian, Portuguese, French, and Spanish colonialists. The period of primitive primary accumulation prepared the takeoff of capitalism, which Marx put of the year 1500. This is really riveting, uh, Penny. I just want to uh, interject here to our listeners that you are listening to Reparations in Action podcast and FM radio show. And we're talking today about shattering the white lie that white people brought civilization to the world with Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and myself, Jamie Simpson. Please continue. All right. Okay. Well, let me just say a few more things. And then I definitely want to, you know, discuss this. But by about 1500, 
Portugal alone had taken some 700 tons of gold out of Africa, a massive primary accumulation. And it's something that Karl Marx called the primitive accumulation of capital. And it's something that we have to bring in here because Chairman O'Malley Chatella has analyzed this and the theory of African internationalism has given this the understandings that we need to under, to to see the world and comprehend what is happening in the world and where it is going. And that is the fact that Europe was poor. Feudalism was so impoverished that even feudal lords didn't have any money. They had, um, they had some land and they forced the peasants to, to give uh, most of their, their food uh, that they grew to them, but they didn't have wealth. They did, and they didn't have any education. In fact, the first real educational possibilities came when, um, through the Crusades, which began at the end of the 11th century or in 1095, in which Europe sends out forces basically to conquer what is now, um, you know, North Africa and the Arab, the, you know, the Arab lands of that time and Northern Africa of Africans and to, you know, begin to steal resources. And certainly the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire relied on colonialism and the growth of wheat, honey, wine, other things from North Africa that they forced um, to, and, and of course, they conquered uh, much of, and they, they brought resources from there into, into Southern Europe. And so, you know, this is, this is the reality that this is what Marx called the primitive accumulation of capital. Because he says, well, how did Europe get from this impoverished Europe, impoverished feudal society with no money to become the, within a relatively short period of time, the wealthiest, greatest capitalist system? How was capitalism born and how did Europe become wealthy and powerful? It was based on what, he, what Karl Marx calls the primitive accumulation of capital. Where did the startup money come from? Because we know that even having a business or uh, anything that you have to have startup money, it's never incremental. And this came from the looting of Africa, the, the theft of the gold and then turning of African people into commodities. And it was this that just burst um, at the seams with, with stolen wealth coming into Europe along with the genocide of the indigenous people, the theft of gold and silver in the Americas, the enslavement of, of indigenous people as well, and this massive productive force of enslaved Africans um, through violence that, that created just this, this explosion of wealth for Europe, the, what's called the triangular the trade and the uh, just whole political economy of colonialism this is what created wealth. This was what created capitalism to begin with. And this is the basis of what we want to talk about. There's so much more to say, but I want to um, just say that it's so interesting and empowering to see this, Jesse and, and Jamie, you know, I just really want to get your input on it and, ha and just see what, um, what you think about this that we've talked about today. I know this question of private ownership you know, is so amazing too, and is really important concept in how Europe conquered the rest of the world. Uhuru. Uhuru. Wow. That has been so powerful, Penny. 
Um, there's, there's, there's so much history here that is just suppressed in the colonial narrative, as you're saying, and so much that we see in the world that we're told to believe has just always been here that was created in this process of primitive accumulation that you're talking about that destroyed so many civilizations. And I, I'm thinking about this, this book, A History of Africa by Hosea Jaffe, that is so very illuminating. And I'm, I'm looking at this uh, first chapter here along the question of private property, right? And it says here on page 15, the European conquistadors in the Americas, Africa, and Asia came armed not only with gunpowder and the Bible, but also, and above all, with their prior history, based on the experience and the concept of private ownership of the land. The revolution, and I use, you know, put that word in quotes for a moment, the revolution from communal to private land ownership outside Western Europe came largely, if not solely, from Western European influence or from direct conquest and dispossession. And, you know, this goes on to it just itemize uh, area by area, geographic territory by geographic territory, whether it's China, India, the Americas, Africa, how the rule of the day was collective ownership of the land. There, there wasn't this concept of one feudal lord owning the land and therefore owning the land that, you know, carries into the, the labor relations, the kind of society that you have. This was the main export of Europe, was this, this tyrannical concept of the private ownership of land that is so central to colonialism, so central to uh, class distinctions, which really did not exist, certainly in Africa and in the Americas. You, you always had, like you were saying, Penny, this um, plentitude, right? This abundance of, of food, of land, of the, the people's needs were met. They were allowed to meet their own needs. There wasn't this dispossession. And it's, it's that dispossession that is the main commodity that, that Europe introduces through the colonial assault on the land and on, on the people. The, 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 the bondage that flows from that was really stark. And it was a, it was a new thing in the world. The, the, the rule of the day had been this uh, very metropolitan concept, like, like you're saying, of, of, of real free exchange. Um, so it's, it's really something to get our heads around as, as white people. Cause I think so often one of the lies along with telling ourselves that, you know, the Europeans were the great civilizers that we brought this enlightened perspective to the world that also, if, if, if we do see the negatives, the obvious terrors that colonized people face often when those are raised, we're taught as white people to respond. Well, it's always been that way, right? It's just. You, you, you've always had um, one class fighting against another. You've always had people uh, only loving their own kind and hating the outsider. So it's, it's, it really belies that. Like when, when you talk about the uh, xenophilia as opposed to xenophobia, I think for a lot of people, that's going to run contrary to everything that we've heard growing up, which has trained us to believe that this is just a perennial problem, the problem of colonial capitalism that there's nothing you can really do about it mm -hmm. as well. It's, it's just always been this way. Well, that's the colonial narrative. That right. is what we're talking about. That's, what, mm -hmm. that's why we're saying that we're biased on the side of the colonized. And that's, that's what we're talking about. And I think that the private ownership of the land goes together with the 
private ownership of the means of production, you know, which is mm-hmm. essential to capitalism. And, and certainly the private ownership in the land was something that always the colonizers um, justification is, well, nobody was using the land. They weren't using it. They, you know, you hear that from occupation of Palestine to, um, to, you know, the so-called Americas, they weren't using it. And of course, there wasn't even a concept of private. How could you own the land? That's like saying, how could you own air? Well, now we know that, um, you know, imperialism, parasitic capitalism, it does own not only land, but air, water, you know, everything that human beings need to live. So that is part of what imperialism does. And I just, you know, I really, um, I really think that this whole question of the difference between Europe and how, and the material conditions that form that um, and the conditions between how Europe lived and devised its state versus how the whole culture and, and life was in Africa and other places that Diop calls the Southern Cradle. Jesse, what did you think about that? Thank you, um, <clears throat> Chairwoman Penny Hess and, and Jamie. This has been such an illuminating discussion. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to look at history through the eyes of the African working class and through the analysis of African internationalism and Chairman Amalia Shatella. And just in, in the spirit of the theme of this program, White Lies Shattered, I just want to appreciate the, the presentation that you made uh, you know, to open up this discussion, Penny, because I feel like you took an African internationalist sledgehammer to this most foul and offensive lie that Europeans brought civilization to the world. And I think as was just suggested by what Jamie said, this is this is not a lie that, you know, this is not a, an, an idea or a concept that you only run into if you, if you go to a Klan rally or an alt-right meeting. This is pretty much the foundational central lie of white society that we're, we're the civilized ones and everybody else is uncivilized. And, um, and that, you know, we discovered America, quote unquote, and we're the explorers and et cetera. And as you just said, Penny, like this whole idea that that even if, you know, there was land there, there wasn't the people who were there weren't doing anything with it. And that lie is expressed even in terms like the Wild West, you know, that's just part of the popular language mm-hmm. manifest destiny. And then with Israel, the Zionist uh, history of Palestine uh, describes the land as a land without a people for a people without a land when actually there were people living on that land and it wasn't mm-hmm. and, and they they say that the Israeli uh, Jewish Zionists made the desert bloom and that there was nothing there which is of course an obscene lie uh, there was just like mm-hmm. everywhere else there was advanced civilization there mm-hmm. for thousands of years so I, I think this is such an important discussion and you know for white people that uh, if you, if you, you know, if, if this is um, the first time that you're hearing this, then, you know, I agree with what Penny said earlier, that this is an opportunity to really just throw away everything you thought you knew about world history. Mm-hmm. And if you're one of those white people who slept through history class in high school, then, uh, then I think, you know, 
you you probably probably weren't you weren't missing much. You did the right thing, and actually, this is your opportunity to really learn history for the first time, and not not in some stale, boring, horrible way that's designed to justify colonialism and slavery, but in a way that exposes the truth and then it inspires us to to act and to take action. So, just one other thing um, I wanted to bring into this discussion, and I, I know this is something. Chairwoman Penny and Jamie, that I know we want to we want to dive into this much more deeply in the future, uh, and, and perhaps even have a show about uh, about this subject. But mm-hmm. the whole history of what's referred to as the Moorish presence in Europe in this in the so called Iberian Peninsula of Europe, where Africans uh, from you know from North Africa and other places were in were were basically you know, came into and ruled throughout parts of Europe, um, it, it exposes that not only is it untrue that white people brought civilization to the world, but the opposite is actually true. Africans brought civilization to Europe. African mm-hmm. people brought civilization to the, uh, you know, barbaric vandals and, uh, you know, white population that was living in 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 barbaric conditions, it was the Moorish presence. It was, it was the Moorish presence in the Iberian Peninsula that brought literature, libraries, fashion, hygiene. You know, as you've pointed out in Overturning the Culture of Violence, there were white people in Europe prior to that who didn't bathe for entire lifetimes. Uh, this changed with the introduction of, of African civilization into Europe through the Moorish rule. Universities, science, bookstores, philosophy, and white people ultimately rejected this and carried out what is referred to as the reconquista the reconquest in 1492 violently driving out africans out of the iberian peninsula and that history coincides with the rise of spanish and european domination and the invasion of africa and the americas and you know, 1492, that's the year that is always given as the as the year that Columbus began his genocidal expedition. And, and then the whole Spanish mm-hmm. Inquisition, which mm-hmm. was a brutal assault primarily against Africans and Arabs and also even Jews, was part of that. It was all part and parcel of this process of the consolidation of Europe and the consolidation of imperialism the consolidation of whiteness, uh, which was built on on slaughter and torture of the most vile, sadistic kind, uh, and genocide from from its very inception. So it's this is very eye opening, and and I think, I think you know there's a lot mm-hmm. more we can go into in, in future episodes. Yeah. I'm I'm excited for it. And I I would like to. I was thinking that we should. For next week, I think that we should do a continuation of what we're talking about this week because there's more that that we can bring into this. And it's really exciting to look at history. I, I don't like history as it's taught by the imperialists and by the, the colonizers. It, it's, you know, it is. It's so boring. It's and, and it's so, you know, it's just every single thing about it is a lie that justifies what, um, you know, what Europe predominantly has done for the last thousand years, really. And that, but I love history when we look at it the other way around and we look at what now are the the colonized, the conquered 
peoples, but yet the peoples who are still resisting without, um, you know, without fail over and consistently through the, the, the centuries, you know, continuing to resist and have held fiercely onto their culture and their identity in so many ways. And that, um, that resistance is bringing down this system that we see today because the existence of the colonized people really creates a pedestal. And I think that metaphor is really important, you know, that there, that, that we're taught part of the lies that we're taught that, that, that the system, the world, the way it is right now is stable. It's long lasting. It's as, you know, as you all have said, it, it's, it's the way things are and that have always been. So, um, you know, that the fact is, but it isn't, it's, it sits on a pedestal of a great, you know, tectonic struggle going on, you know, just upheaval in which the peoples of the world are pushing off and breaking through and destroying that pedestal. And it must happen, truly must happen for even this planet itself to survive. And it's, it really, when we look at the past and we see what is emerging, societies built on life, on life affirming, on respect and, and just the collective identity and solving of problems so that there is not and does not need to be material want. We don't need to live in a world in which billionaires have the vast majority of the wealth and the colonizer population has second to that. And that, you know, the, all the places in Africa and other parts of the world where the resources are being stolen from, where the human beings are being and were stolen from and still are, uh, are suffering and, and living on a dollar a day or less and literally starving. That what kind of world is that? You know, and that this is, there's going to be a new world, but white people are not going to create it, but we can participate in it. But it's very exciting to understand it because when we see the world through the eyes of the colonizers, then we can understand what's happening today because of this trajectory of resistance, this, this clash of the, the worldview and the conditions of the colonized against the colonizer. And it's liberating, it's beautiful. And it gives us the ability to, uh, to you know, to join humanity. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I really appreciated, Chairwoman Penny, what you were saying about, like, the, the tragedy, right, in, in the northern cradle in, in Europe, that, that this obsession with the pessimism, the isolation versus the communalism of uh, Africa and, and the, the rest of uh, the civilized world, and that we as white people are really very new to this concept of civilization. The con civilization itself was something that if it wasn't introduced to us by uh, African people, um, it, then it was something that we stole at gunpoint, at bayonet point, right? We, we, we stole along with the, the, the human, the, the material resources, the, the, the labor power and the loot. There was the knowledge, the science, the organization of society and I, I think there's something to this, this European barbarous colonizer mindset that wants us to believe 
in this static view of history, that it's always been this way, always going to be this way. We're not going to be able to change it. And I think it, it dovetails nicely that that concept with the the, the mm-hmm. much more liberating worldview that uh, African internationalism takes that Chairman Omali Yeshatela uses of dialectical materialism versus the idealism, right? Yeah. A worldview where you see everything not as static and unknowable, but as humanly knowable and constantly changing, comprised of forces either coming into existence and trying to be born and forces dying but not yet dead and, and passing out of existence. That's just such a much more organic and liberating worldview Mm -hmm. that allows us to understand that we don't, we're not the authors of history here. There is the colonized mass of uh, African workers, of of Arabs, of of indigenous people, of of the the peoples of Asia who are taking back their self-determination. And this is the thing that we can be connected to and, and really understand that this is, it's, it's, it is overthrowing this system. It will overthrow this system. And there, there is no world power that's going to last forever. You know, that's, it's, it's just an insane kind of worldview to think that, that things are static. Um, it's, it's demonstrably mm-hmm. false. So it's, it's really liberating right. to um, understand a, a worldview that embraces that constant change. And um, yeah, I, I just thoroughly appreciate these readings. I, I agree. Yeah. And there's so much more because this is just a little tiny tidbit of, of what we can look at. And I, I would like to continue with this, this one for sort of part two for next week. And then, um, you know, we can go a little bit more into some other books and some other writings and certainly through the ideas of Chairman Omalia Shatella. And I think that, um, you know, we will continue. I'm very excited about this whole 13, well, it's actually going to be more than 13 weeks, but this whole series of going through different aspects of things that we learn as the colonial narrative and just debunking them by looking at them through the lens of African internationalism. Yes. Yeah. And, and there's, there's so much that can, can, can be said too. We can, you know, eventually when, when we're done with the 13 week series, maybe we'll, we'll go ahead and, you know, cl- closer to the present and 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 look at the african revolution and and what's what's happening now and there's also stuff we could say about the uh origins of european identity even going back to uh the greeks and the romans right who are put on such a pedestal um there, there's a, a lot about mm-hmm. what uh they understood that also was appropriated or stolen from from african and totally and, i mean when we say that africans brought civilization we can go back to to the greeks and the romans they stole i mean they they looted these ideas and basically took responsibility for them um you know the greeks being first and um and and just and some of them did admit you know these ideas came from pythagorean you know pythagorean understanding came from egypt and you know just mathematical and and other kinds of concepts came from there from that civilization so and and then looking at the reality looking at the social organization of the greeks maybe we can get to this in a later episode too you've got the fact that what maybe only 20 percent of of greek uh citizens were considered citizens had had any kind of democratic space uh the the centrality of of slavery to uh greek society Mm -hmm. and the ways in which um you know the the modern colonists were really trying to emulate the Greeks and the Romans 
with this concept of of a democracy based on slave on on owning slaves and just the 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 upside down nature of that is is validated through through the Greeks and the Romans so it's it's just so important to to really understand how thoroughly the concept that uh, white people brought civilization to the world is a lie and i think we can say here on the first episode of reparations in action white lies shattered uh, White lie number one officially shattered. <laughs> Uhuru. Well, uh, Jesse Neville, chair of the Uhuru Solidarity Movement, and uh, Penny Hess, chairwoman of the African People's Solidarity Committee and author of Overturning the Culture of Violence, have uh, been with us for the hour. My name is Jamie Simpson. This has been Reparations in Action. You're listening to Reparations in Action. 